Uh, Dodge, I, I'm agitated. Tell me why, Pete. I just, I get fired up about this stuff. I'm trying to maintain my chill. Yeah. It's really hard. We've been talking about Sam stuff this morning a little bit before we started recording, and... It raises uh, the blood pressure a little, doesn't it? Sure does. Sure, sure does. And, uh, you know, on top of the fact that we're living through a massive pandemic that vast majorities of the population don't believe is happening... um, Now, we also have to live through this where we, humanity, exercises such violence on one another and we have to, you know, fight for the data to prove it. It, it, It is extraordinarily frustrating. And it's hard to put it's hard to put the words into into place. Yeah, I mean, when I started looking up how many insane bits of data there are out there that are well tracked Wim- women who trip and fall <laughs> right <laughs> what are you doing people who die of falling off ladders i'd love to get your search history for last week <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing i mean it was just it was incredible what you can find and yet uh this has has been neglected and i don't know any better word for it um and Part of what's been so powerful about this conversation for me uh, is reflected in the exercise for members, which is just the incredible yeah. power of collecting information in an objective, thoughtful, thorough way that right there can change the world. Awareness, sure enough, changes things in the world of physics, in the world of spirituality, and now in the world of of social justice as it does in the world of psychology just paying attention to something already begins to change it and i mean did you hear that stat on oakland yeah they'd really they yeah. reduced police violence was was it by 90 percent ridiculous right without right? Cha- I mean, it's crazy without a and change this is the thing about crime sam. levels this, this is the thing about sam that that sir, i'm i'm consistently kind of as I listen back through the episode, as we're editing it, like I, I'm, um, he just presents the data and doesn't yell and scream about it, and that's the part that's broken for me. I, I am wired in such a way that when presented with the data, it is all I can do not to yell and scream about it. You just see red, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And figuring out, like, I found that conversation between the two of you truly aspirational uh, because just listening to him and his demeanor and the things he feels strongly about and the way he has navigated his really nascent career, all things being equal, um, it is, I, I find, fascinating and model for what I would like to do with my own or be able to observe in the world in my own life, in my own career. His fascination with education for uh, marginalized peoples, for people of color, for young black men in particular, like his fascination with that was only superseded by violence. And that line that he said, if you cannot live, you cannot learn, changed his his life with the continued sort of um, exercise of violence. And, and, did it in such a way that I found um, incredibly compelling that he decided I'm going to bear witness to this through research and data and I'm going to let others just see. Let's pull back the veil 
and see what's ha- see what happens. Mm-hmm. Let's see if our populace is up to the task of changing their own minds when presented with the facts. As a young man of color, well, really, of, of you know, a, bi- a biracial background, he's in sort of three positions at once. Like he's he's a data analyst, but he's aware that it could be him, right? That yeah. if he were pulled over um, by somebody, you know, in a in an area where I don't know where the policies weren't right, where the mentality wasn't right, where the training was different, uh, where whatever. Um, sadly, what I heard in his data was the browner you are, the less safe you are in the hands of the very people who are here to protect us. Mm-hmm. That, right. that is maybe an exaggerated way to read what he just said, but you know that Native Americans, um, people of Hispanic origins are at a much higher likelihood to be killed by police officers than white people and blacks even more than the brown groups, right? That's a scary thing. So he is in that group too. And he is an advocate, right? He is advocating for change. And he talked about that toward the end of that that interview where he's just saying it's an interesting place to be in where I'm like, I'm not just the scientist. I then have to turn around and go and have a conversation about it with people who don't yet understand these numbers and have, have got, you know, a whole set of assumptions he has to wade through. And, you know, a piece of what, what hurts my heart too, and maybe this speaks to some to, to my background, also to the fact that there's a, a member of my family I care about very deeply whose, uh, whose son is a, is a really good cop. Um, I, my heart hurts for the police officers also, not the ones yeah. who are cops who, you know, from the moment they woke up that morning, were hoping they could kill a black guy. Like, I guess there are some of those out there, but I think it's probably a whole lot more freaking complicated than that. And that is really sad. And as a guy who's practiced yes. martial arts for a very long time, I know a lot of people who've been, you know, in positions of violence, sometimes absolutely justified and sometimes where... Uh, afterward, they look back and they realize maybe there was something else I could have done besides use what I know. Um, and all of them have felt uh, badly about it. Like, it doesn't feel good to hurt another human being. It, it's mm-hmm. not like in Hollywood. It isn't like that. And I believe a whole lot of cops out there who through policy or training or whatever else mentality um, or just really police being called for situations where police may not belong, you know, and maybe a mental health crisis kind of thing where their training is just not right. And so they end up applying the force they've been trained to use and somebody right. gets hurt. I, I have, right. I make up that this sucks for them too. Like everybody loses when this isn't fixed. I don't, I don't know that you're making, I don't know that you're making anything r- r- really uh, because I think I and I, I should say I don't know any cops like the ones you just described, and I know a number of cops, and they're all incredible people. They're yeah. wonderful people. They're thoughtful people. They they live deeply in the world, right? Right. Like they move deeply through the world, and I uh, I appreciate them and the work that they do. And I'm curious about this angle from your perspective. I think that 
we are that that when put in a place, all humans, whether you're police or not, uh, or military or whatever, all humans, when put in a state of that of sort of that uh, exacerbated kind of emotional state, a position of fear, a position of like you you rely on the fastest response that you have at your fingertips and that may be when a position when you're in a position of fear and doubt and uncertainty it may be pulling a gun it may be it may be it's it's, your example is just you know if all if if you have a wrench and you show up to a plumbing disaster you're the right guy for the job but if you have a wrench and you show up because a barn animal is ill you're the wrong guy for the job like it's just we got to pair the right stuff so i think i i wonder if any of us would be completely immune when faced with the kinds of things that we're asking police to be faced with and not just the kind of you know specific incident but the breadth of incidents that we are giving police forces across the country how you know how do you bounce back from that sort of trauma state of constantly being constantly living at your highest emotional response like how do you how do you do that right and i'm not saying that any of this is a way to forgive police for for you know uh, incidents of police violence it is that should we expect anything should we be able to expect anything less i think what i heard him say was that when the policies change um the outcomes change. And those policies, you know, are a number of policies that happen within police departments and then beyond them also when we do things like decriminalize marijuana, which sets up lots and lots and lots of arrests for nonviolent crimes yeah. that might are questionable even as crimes in the first place. That then Think, things that are nonviolent crimes that because of the policies in the state or municipality become violent crimes. Right. Because of compounded the, often the by the, the training are. for here's how you show enough force during an arrest yeah. that the person doesn't even think of fighting back. Exactly. And, and then sometimes right. actually I'm not I, I really question whether that training is accurate um, because it does sound like when there are fewer arrests, there's a whole lot less violence. Um, yeah. Nobody is saying people shouldn't be arrested for being dangerous. Um, they're saying we need to think about how we're doing this so that um, the outcomes are different because way too many people are being hurt and killed, and it's it's not working. Have you seen the uh, the 13th Amendment, or 13th, I think was the official title? It's a Netflix uh, documentary by Ava DuVernay, who did um, uh, Selma. No. And it's on the 13th Amendment and and the history of the 13th Amendment. And she talks, uh, the you know, through the stories of history, uh, and she goes through what the 13th Amendment was all about and how, you know, really from the beginning, while we kind of hate to talk about it, if we really shine light on it, um, you know, policing in its oldest form was designed to set up white people in force going out to capture runaway slaves black people like it was an entire sort of cast a job of capturing black people and doing so with utmost disrespect and violence generally and wow. talking about that all the way through history um is it, it was an in it, it's an incredible film 
right? It's an incredible film, and it's absolutely worth, uh, you know, worth watching. And describes and demonstrates a lot of the historical baggage that our current policies bring with it. Because for generations, this has been a conversation that we've been having and not having. Well, I think about that adage from the special forces in crisis, we don't rise to the occasion, we fall back to our training. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense to me that um, a whole lot of the probably most intense training is around what do you do in critically frightening or dangerous situations. Um, And yet, uh, there are probably too many police officers who don't get enough training in what do you do in other situations. And now, of course, this is, this starts to, it, it starts to compound itself, right? I mean, I, I keep thinking about a, a friend of mine, African-American guy, um, who's, uh, successful and bright and uh, kind and good in all the ways anybody could be expected to be. I mean, he's just a top-notch human being um, and has never committed a violent or criminal act in his entire life. And he got pulled over on the highway in L.A. uh, for, you know, something he didn't even know why he was being pulled over. I think his, maybe it was a taillight, maybe it was a license plate, maybe it was five miles an hour over the speed limit, but I don't think he was even that. And he was so scared as the police officers walking up to his car that he was sobbing uncontrollably, shaking in the front seat to the point where the cop, as I think in this case, it was a she comes to the window, like, she literally steps back from him saying, hey, 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 are you okay? Like he was, he just felt like he was decompensating with fear because he thought not tonight was the night he was going to die of being black. Oh, and God. and it's like, I get pulled over and my thought is, oh, come on. What did I do now? Did I forget to renew my license plate? And he's thinking tonight's the night I die. How many people did I not have a chance to say goodbye to? And I would <laughs> I wish it were true that it's just because the media has overblown this and it's gotten exaggerated and and now it feels like I'm going to die even when that's unlikely. But what I'm hearing from Samson Youngway is sadly um the chances are a whole lot higher for him that he would be hurt in even an innocent, you know, exchange like this than I would be. That doesn't even cross my mind. I don't have to teach my son what to do when a cop comes to the window. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, dear friend of mine, um, also black and in a, is interracial, uh, marriage. And so his wife is white and, um, they, he's, you know, has these kids who, you know, are, um, you know, lighter skin than he is, but, um, but, you know, black, children right mm-hmm. like they uh, they yeah present kids of color, black yeah. children clearly kids of kids of color and uh we had this conversation and i was i it took me a minute to realize that when he told me i had to have the talk with my kids 
And it was something that my wife really, you know, was like, we need to hold, hold off on that just a little bit. And he said, I just felt really strongly as, uh, you know, for me, a black guy growing up in Alabama, I have to talk to my kids, even now that we're here safely in Oregon and we live in a neighborhood that feels feels safe. Like we live in a state that is facing increasing, uh, you know, sort of strife, not decreasing. Yeah. And uh, he said, I had to have the talk. And I was like, oh, you're going to talk about sex? Is that what <laughs> we're doing? I'm like, oh, God, what an idiot. What wow. an idiot. <laughs> He's talking about something very, very different. He's talking about what to do. How do you navigate the world in a world where you have to you have to measure a little bit of fear of police all the time? That's I hate that. And I even hate it for the wonderful police officers out there who are not dangerous people. Who aren't yeah, even remotely likely to hurt most I mean, of them. <laughs> of course, the vast majority. Right. And there's still this thing. I mean, what was ended up being kind of sweet about this story about my friend as he's pulled over is, you know, the police officer was really kind. I mean, really compassionate. It was really clear on, I want you to know I'm not going to hurt you. You're safe. You're safe. You're safe. It's okay. Uh, like, she was great. And beautiful. <laughs> how sad that that even crosses his mind. And... Yeah. Let's flip to the other side of this conversation, which is how incredible that as this conversation is beginning to happen, that police violence is drastically on the decline. And how beautiful is that? Like there, there are ways to change this. It really does make a difference. It does not put cops at greater risk. It doesn't make the community any more dangerous, Um, but it makes it safer to be a person of color and a citizen in this country. And mm-hmm. that really makes me breathe a little better. And that's a big piece of why I really wanted this beautiful work that Sam and others are doing to get out there. Yeah, do you, do you want to talk a little bit about your relationship with Sam? Yes. Isn't that a, an interesting, okay. So get this everybody. Um, I have known of Samson young since he was born because his father has known me since I was born. And it goes like this. So Sam's father is Tanzanian, and his name is Credo. And Credo was somebody that my parents took under their wing when he was a child, and they were in Tanzania themselves, um, and grew to love immensely, loved him like a son, and they have loved him ever since. They have been in touch, and they really are are the ones responsible for helping him uh, come to the United States um, to be educated here, and as a result, to meet a uh, lovely wife, um, happens to be white, uh, and to have these two absolutely incredible kids, Sam and Noah. And Sam is named for my father, Sam, and his middle name is Nicholas, named for my mother, Nikki. And growing up, he was always known as Sam Nick. Um, (laughs) And and so I've known of him just sort of affectionately from afar. Sam and I have never actually met in person. We don't happen to live in similar states. I've known Kratos since I was a kid. Um, And Mm -hmm. I mean, he's truly the most amazing person. Um, 
And so it's no surprise to me that he would raise two sons who are just absolutely amazing people. And, uh, and Credo has been on my radar for a long time thinking of this show because his life is a life of the most unbelievable change, right? I mean, uh, it is, it's an incredible story of synchronicity, of generosity, of um, just grace upon grace upon grace that allowed him to live kind of an impossible um, trajectory different from the rest of his countrymen um, and give a lot to the world, including the legacy of his incredible boys. Uh, and so what we've done, as you well know, because you were there, is to interview Credo <laughs> about his story, uh, which we're releasing as a kind of a bonus, um, kind of a, a, a membership bonus for those who are uh, supporters of our show. If you're listening to this, you will in in your podcast player, you will you will get the Credo episode. And you know, we we struggled. I, I don't know, would you say struggled? We discussed mightily what to do with the Credo episode because his story is amazing and varied and the enthusiasm with which he tells it chapter after chapter is it 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 became very difficult for us to figure out how to compress it. Uh, and so it's longer than our usual episodes. Uh, I'd say it's it's probably coming in over two hours. Yeah. Oh, it's uh, a good bit longer. The story yeah. is epic. And so my thought as I was going was like, okay, well, we'll we'll just have to figure out how to edit this so that it's a digestible length. Um, and turns out that's not possible. <laughs> it was completely impossible. There's just too much of significance. Like you, can't, I can't cut that part out. It's it's amazing. I can't cut that part. We can't we can't we can't go line by line and just sort of like drop things to cut the. So we decided we're just going to release the whole blasted thing. Uh, and yeah. even then, at you know whatever two and a half hours, it's a bit truncated because um, because I, I literally just ran out of that time that day, and so we we had to hurry just a little bit at the end of it. Um, but we've gotten to the biggest parts, which is him coming to this country and meeting Lisa ultimately, and so on. And so we right. covered a few of them, you know, in summary form at the end. But um, but it's it's an it's a, it's a wonderful story, and uh, and fun to hear. It really is, and we're thrilled to be able to just you know. Just release the whole thing. I don't, I don't want just, to cut a word. You know, I mean, it's too good. Enjoy this. Yeah, I mean, enjoy the story and enjoy the voice of this man who's uh, really special. And uh, <laughs> uh, it is, it's a fairy tale. It is a fairy tale. It is, yes, um, in so many ways it is. Know, so if you imagine in your head a book opening, once upon a time, mm -hmm. there was a boy fishing in a river. And then it just goes from there. It's amazing. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's it. And uh, what a great delight to be able to have this time with Sam as, as you know, by means of your connection with, with Credo and the, the family connection is just so, so special. And so, um, yeah, I it's just, great. It was I feel so proud to know them both. Um, yeah. And by all accounts, his wife, Lisa, who works in the mayor's office in Orlando, is absolutely as extraordinary a human being. And I hear that younger brother Noah now at West Point is just an incredible kid too. Uh, it's just amazing. Human beings just yeah. blow my mind every single day. Uh, I love doing what I do. And this podcast makes it even more fun because I get to talk about all kinds of other cool things too. Yeah. Right. It's mm -hmm. really special. Uh, any other closing thoughts on, uh, on Sam? You feel good? Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm, I'm really at just, God bless this country and this problem and 
help us heal it because it's it's such a huge a huge issue and it's going to take a lot of listening and compassion on both sides and it's going to take a ton of data like this to say hey look this is a problem we can prove it and look there are solutions that work we can prove it yeah and i want to add one more thing which is um i had a conversation after our episode after the interview with somebody else who knows of Sam and has heard great things about him, but said, you know, there's some interesting pushback about some of the data. Like it's, it is complicated. Even the data itself is complicated about what solutions work. For example, some have said, Hey, you know, among those, those uh, solutions are body cams. And it turns out they aren't making the difference we hoped, but it, it doesn't change the fact that there are changes that can be made uh, among the good people and the good police departments of this country that can save a whole lot of lives of equally good people. We, we have a, th- there is a tendency of just batching responses to these sorts of, of data. And I, I think what Sam is exemplary of is that if you sit down and look at the data hard enough to say body cams aren't a universal solution. The hope is you are a person willing to say, let's keep digging and find the solution buried in this data. Yeah. Uh, Even though our experience right now in sort of the media economy that we've created for ourselves is, see, Sam, body cams aren't a solution. Therefore, all your data sucks. No. Let's not not listen to it. there, There is that there is that response, that knee-jerk, yeah. I, I, one thing is wrong, so I'm going to discount everything. Yeah. And we, we cannot keep doing that. We cannot do it. Yeah. We have to stop. Yeah. And, um, and I think this is a great example of it. Yep, exactly. Exactly. Well, buddy, I love you. Yeah. Love you too, man. Can't help it.